Hello and welcome to the Kalamazoo Church of Christ podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're a startup church we just planted in September 2020. And at the Kalamazoo Church, we believe that Christianity is done best when it is done together. And so if you live in the Kalamazoo area, we would love to connect. Be it coming to a Sunday service, one of our small groups, or even just grabbing coffee with a member to learn more. You can visit kalamazoo.church in order to do that. We pray that you are inspired by what you hear today. Now I can talk quietly. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you, BJ, for joining us. little trivia before we get started. BJ is actually the guy that studied the Bible with me when I was in Milwaukee. So it's really cool to have him visit. If I had known he was going to be in town, we could have hung out a little bit this weekend, but uh, that's okay. You texted me right at the last second. That's okay, though. That's, ha- that's what happens. We're going to jump into this uh, lesson. First of all, just a little disclaimer. I'm going to try to really be quick, and there's a lot of points, a lot of scripture that I want to get to, so I might be talking a little fast. You can write down the scriptures that we're going through if you can't turn to them quickly, and that's that's okay, and you can just revisit it later in the week. Um, all right, but we're going we're gonna to jump in here. If we were to take a poll of, let's say, the state of, or the city of Kalamazoo or the state of Michigan, and we were to ask them to define, hey, what is, what is faith? Um, we would probably get sort of a handful of answers, right? I think um, some people would say, oh, faith is a belief or a conviction. Other people might say faith is being, you know, being faithful is being trustworthy or being honest, like I'm faithful to my wife. If you were to ask somebody who maybe has spent a certain amount of time around the scriptures, they would probably quote Hebrews 11. Um, let me grab my laptop here so that I can use the uh, television set. Boom, Hebrews 11, which says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. If you were to ask me that question maybe three months ago, that's exactly what I would say. Hebrews 11, I think it's such a great uh, definition. We get it right out of the Bible, and it just defines it perfectly right before the Hall of Faith, which is a a super famous chapter in the Bible. Amen. Amen. So, okay, we're going to use that as our working definition for the day, right? Right out of the Bible. Faith is being sure of what we hope for. So it stands to reason that if you want to have faith, you need to be hopeful. You need to have hope. And so now I'm going to ask, define hope. What is that? I don't know how everybody else fear, feels here, but for me, that's a lot more difficult of a, of a question to answer. Like, hope, is it, I mean, hope's something you want, right? But it's something that you really want. But that doesn't seem to make sense with this definition. Faith is being sure of what I really want, because that's not always true. The heart is deceitful above all things. So I, um, and a couple weeks ago, or maybe a couple months ago, I was put in a situation in my life and I was kind of forced to like pick like, oh man, I don't know what to do. And I want to act faithfully. And I really just want to be a faithful disciple. And so I did what I thought any Christian would do is I went to the Bible. I went to the scripture and I started searching for 
faith, right? Oh, well, what is faithful? And I came across this scripture in Hebrews 11. I'm like, okay, that doesn't help me at all. <laughs> and I, thankfully, by God's mercy, I, I, you know, I was kind of prompted to go back and revisit it. And I'm like, why? Why is this not helpful to me? This is literally the biblical definition of faith, and it doesn't help me make a faithful decision. And I was thinking about it, and I was pondering it and praying about it, and I recognize this because I have no clue biblically what this word hope means. And so that started this sort of rabbit hole search on what is hope? What does the hope look like in the Bible? What does hope look like in reality? What does it look like for someone to have hope? And this lesson here, when Jaron asked me, hey, I want you to preach on a Sunday, preach whatever you want to preach about, this is what I was prompted to teach on. And so I want to, if you'll humor me and you'll indulge me, I'd like to share with you sort of what I, the conclusion I came up to in this search in the Bible. Amen? So I'm going to have three points today, but before I jump into the Bible, let's take a look at the Hebrew language for a second. Hope, in the, there's three Hebrew words that will translate to the English word hope. So when you're reading like the book of Jeremiah and you see hope, it's like one of these three words. The first word is this word. Now I don't I don't speak the language very like so. Forgive my pronunciation. Is this word yachal, and it simply means to wait for. Like you'd be waiting for the bus, or you're waiting for uh, the weekend to come, or something like that. The second and third word, the word these words kava and tikva, they both come from the same root word, which is this word um, that means cord or cord. And so it's this idea of tension, right? I'm waiting and I'm hoping for something, and there's there's tension that I'm feeling as I'm waiting. And with both of these words, you see this sort of idea of certainty. Um, we're hoping for something. We're very certain that it's going to come, whether we're just waiting for it or we're anticipating it in suspense. There is, we know something is going to happen. Right now, it's December, December 5th, and in 20 days, Christmas is going to be coming. And right now, we all, we know Christmas is going to be here. In less than 20 days, it's going to be here. And so we're waiting for it. We're yachaling it. Or maybe we're anticipating it. And so we're going Christmas shopping. We bought our Christmas tree yesterday. We're setting up decorations. We're putting together lists. And so if we're using this definition from Hebrews of faith, right? So faith is being sure of what we hope for. We're hoping for Christmas to come. We know it's a coming. We're anticipating it. And so Christmas shopping and Christmas decorating, those would be acts of faith, right? Yeah. So we're going to take a look at the Old Testament, um, a couple scriptures in the Old Testament. If you turn to Jeremiah chapter 29, these are um, scriptures that the uh, Jews or the people of Israel had to look back on when they were in exile in Babylon. So they're looking at the Bible, and this is things that could give them hope, that they could wait for. In Jeremiah 29, verse 10, it says, This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope, yachal, and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and listen to me when you seek me with all your heart. I said yachal, that's actually tikva. So that's like this idea of tension is the word that the Hebrew word being used there. And then um, if you look page forward to Jeremiah 31, in verse 31, it says, 
The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So we see in these, in these scriptures in Jeremiah that uh, there's this anticipation and there's a certainty that at some point in the future, God is going to be doing something. He's going to bring the people back to Israel and then he's going to somehow do something amazing and write scripture on the, the hearts of the people of Israel and on their minds. And this is the, what the people of Israel had to look at during the time of their restoration of Jerusalem. And so we're going to turn over to Nehemiah. And the Nehemiah is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today. So if you want to go over there. In Old Testament, amen. My first point is that hope generates ambition. So the people of Israel, they're working their way back to Jerusalem. They've been there for a couple years now. And we're gonna, I'm going to summarize Nehemiah chapter 1 a little bit. Nehemiah, he hears that the walls of Jerusalem are still, they're not rebuilt, and that the city's not in very fantastic shape. And so he hears this and he, he prays. Right in verse 5, Nehemiah verse one, chapter 1, verse 5, he, he prays and he calls to God. And I want to look at these two, or Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 10. It's in the middle of this prayer. It says, They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give the servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was the cupbearer to the king. So this prayer that Nehemiah prays, we see that he, there's a couple things that I want to point out here. First, is that as soon as he hears the walls of Jerusalem are not in good shape, he already has an idea of something he's going to do. His prayer is not, God, open up, open up a, a path for me to do. He has an idea, and he says, God, I'm going to do this. Grant me success. The second thing I want to point out is that his prayer is not selfish. It's not for selfish ambition. God, I want to be successful. He says, Give uh, success to your servant and to your servants who delight in revering your name. So it's not for himself. It's for his fellow Israelites to glorify God. And so when we're talking about ambition, I'm talking about not selfishly wanting to lift yourself up. We know biblically that that's not good. I'm talking about ambition to revere God's name and glorify God's name and with other people. And so, and so right, right away, if we're going to this idea of hope, of hope being a line under tension, right? I'm, I'm anticipating something. I'm under tension. I could snap at any time. And that's how Nehemiah is at, uh, operating here. He has this assumption that God is going to be acting at any time. And he, he has to be there. He has to. And he's waiting and he's anticipating in suspense until he can't do it anymore. And then he decides to act. And he wants to do it righteously with all his heart. And to be a part of this amazing thing that God is doing in Jerusalem. And he's putting the responsibility on God to tell him no. And, you know, in the New Testament, Jesus says, uh, unless you're like children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And 
I was thinking about that and thinking about this, and I was just thinking about when you go to like Target with a child, right? You're walking through the toy aisle, and they're just grabbing at things, and they want things, and they're like looking for this, that, or the other thing. Spider-Man, G.I. Joe, Goku, if you like Dragon Ball Z. Like, and they're just putting this responsibility on the parents to tell them no, not because they're being like mean or bad children, it's because they're like thinking, oh, maybe this time my parents will say yes, maybe this time my parents will say yes. And then finally, the parent says, okay, yes, you can have the Spider-Man toy, and they're ecstatic, and they're like, oh, yeah, that's great. And that's how Nehemiah is acting here. He's making, he's, he's striving for something, and God grants him, says yes, and he finally is allowed to keep the Spider-Man toy. And now I want to make a distinction. I'm not promoting thoughtlessly just going after any crazy idea that's in our head. Um, motivation is the other part of this, right? Um, and we look back at the prayer. He says, ooh, yikers. He says, uh, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Again, I'm reiterating. The point is not to bring glory to himself. The point is to bring glory to God. Um, if we jump down to um, chapter 2, verse 17, it says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king said to me. They replied, Let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. We see that... Uh, Nehemiah, he's acting out this prayer, right? He goes and he uses words like we and us. He's not putting it on himself. He's saying, yes, we can do this. Let's do this together and to glorify God. And he, um, and it's, and it's a good work. The Bible describes it as a good work because he's doing it for God, you know, and his hope for the future generates action in the present. And this action is not by myself for myself but rather it is by us for God. And his hope, this hope that Nehemiah has is inspiring the people of Israel to hope alongside him because hope inspires those who are willing to be inspired. And that leads me to my second point, which is that hope generates conflict. Because sometimes hope inspires people but other times, people need to be confronted by hope. Of course, wisdom and discernment are needed, and prayer are needed before we engage in conflict. But if we're going to be people who are hopeful and are full of hope, there needs to be an expectation that, that conflict is headed our way. So we're going to jump forward to uh, chapter 5, verse 6. Uh, I only wrote down like, verse 7 right here, but I'm looking at verse 6 to 12. It says, When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind, took some time to ponder them in his mind, and then he accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called them together. I called a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who are sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us? They kept quiet because they could not find anything to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. 
Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately the fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. So what's going on here is that the people, a couple people, different groups, and the people of Israel are going to Nehemiah and asking for help because the nobles and the higher up are sort of take, breaking God's law and they're taking advantage of uh, the lesser fortunate people of Israel. And so they go and they ask for help and Nehemiah confronts them. And so the point I make want to kind of drive home here is that he's talking to his fellow Israelites. He's talking to people who are supposed to be with him and they're supposed to be hoping with him and they should have just as much anticipation as he does in what God is doing in Jerusalem. They're trying to rebuild and reestablish this for this future covenant God is establishing and they're not. Instead, they're breaking God's law and doing something else. And when we hope for people, when we have more hope for a people than they have for themselves, there's going to be friction and that's okay. It is okay. Because if Nehemiah didn't hope for these people, he would have just kept his mouth shut. And they were so close. He could see these people, yes, they are acting ungodly, but they are so close to being godly. They just need a little push. They're in Jerusalem. They made the trek there. They helped rebuild the wall already. They're, they, they're there. And so he confronts them and he says, hey, shouldn't you be doing this with me? And they say, yes, you're right. We should. And they go along with them. Um, and the goal of his confrontation, it's not to, it's to give them the right perspective, right? Because the question is not, will God restore Jerusalem? The question is, can we be a part of God's restoration of Jerusalem? And that's what he's trying to get them to see, you know, because God's will is going to be done no matter what. It just is. Um, but hope is the anticipation and expectation that God's will is going to be done and the desire to be a part of it. Unfortunately, not all conflict ends that way. If you turn back to uh, chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 1 to 6. This guy, his name is, I believe it's pronounced Sambalay, but it might be Sambalat. I'm not 100% sure. But he says, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read it. It says, when Sembalat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring their stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they are building, even a fox climbing climbing up it would break down their walls of stone. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sin from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall to all of, the, to all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. This is not the first time that this guy 
ridicules them for rebuilding the wall. And it's actually also not the last time. This time specifically, I wanted to bring up because I feel like it just packs the whole situation together really well. So I'm going to break it down and just talk about it for a sec. Sanballat, he gets angry and he ridicules them. Now in defense of Sanballat, the, the Persian Empire, from what I am starting to understand and kind of what we're starting to understand, um, just looking back historically, actually wasn't that bad. Okay. Like that, they were like the first empire to realize, like, hey, we don't need to like just openly and overtly oppress our people to right. keep them part of our empire. And that's why they lasted for so long. Um, if you were part of the Persian Empire, you were allowed to travel in the Persian Empire. You were pr mostly allowed to worship the way that you wanted to worship. I mean, obviously there's exceptions, but you were pretty much allowed to. Um, there was a currency. Um, there was a military to protect you from, from invaders. As long as you were willing to give money and give soldiers, you pretty much were able to do mostly what you wanted to do from my understanding of the situation. And so, so this guy, Sanballat, he, he sees the Jews, right? And he sees them rebuilding the temple and the wall and all coming back home. And it's confusing. It's like, hey, why are you doing that? Like, we haven't made here. What do you, you know, he's assumes and not even, he's not even that far off that they want nothing to do with the Persian Empire, right? And he's like, why? That can't, that doesn't make sense to him. And so he gets angry and he starts ridiculing them because the Jews have hope for a future and he doesn't understand that. And when you have hope, it's just confusing to people that don't have it. It doesn't make sense. In 1 Peter 3.15, it says, Be prepared to have an answer for anyone that asks for the hope that is in you. Or for a reason for the hope that is in you. There's a reason the Bible says that, because it's confusing. It really doesn't make a lot of sense. Secondly, Nehemiah prays. Just like in the other example, he separates himself from the situation. He doesn't confront right away, and he, he just... He prays to God first, and he, and then and then they continue working. Actually, they continue working with all their heart. Um, after praying, Nehemiah decides that he doesn't need to confront every single situation. He just needs to just do what God's will is. Being a part of God's mission is more important than engaging in every petty squabble, you know. But in, and in both of these altercations with the nobles and with Sanballat. We see that Nehemiah has a laser focus on what God is trying to get him to do. He is laser focused on what God is doing in Jerusalem. What is God doing and how can I be a part of it? You should write that one down. <laughs> My last point is that hope requires resilience. Resilience is the ability to recover from difficulty. If we turn to Nehemiah chapter 13, it's right at the end of the, uh, right at the end of the book. Um, Nehemiah 13. I have no, I have no clue what my time is at, so we're just, it says in, uh, in verse 6, while I was going on, I was not, or while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the court of the house of God. So Tobiah was one of the guys ridiculing him in the scripture we just read, just so everybody knows. Yep. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back in the equipment of the house of God. 
with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portion assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. I don't know. I guess I look at that, and I just, it, it's almost depressing, I feel like. I, the past two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, they're one book in the, in the, in the Hebrew Bible, and they, they go back to Jerusalem, and they rebuild the temple, and they start rebuilding the wall. And then even at the end of Nehemiah, or like a little bit before, they start reading scripture in, in the, in the uh, town square, and they're like, seems so focused on what God is doing. And then we get to the end of the book, the last chapter, and we see that, again, they start falling away from God, and they start doing their own thing. And man, it's just, it's like sad almost. It's a real staunch reminder that, hey, like this hope that they had, it's, it's not always there. It goes back and forth. It waxes and wanes. You know, and Nehemiah, he comes back and he, he reinvigorates them. And they're like, yeah, and he reestablishes the Sabbath and he does all this stuff. And it's awesome. But it would be foolish, I think, for us to look at this idea of hope and be like, oh, I can hope all the time. Like it's just, just uh, flooring it 100% of the time, you know. I was talking to my dad last week, or maybe this was two weeks ago, and he, he maybe dad recently bought a crossbow, and so he, he got it all sighted in, and he was, you know, he's firing it, and he had it just perfect, man, and over a couple weeks, yeah, my, not my impression, so over, over the course of some time, he went and he fired it again, and it just, it wasn't hitting the mark, it was shooting too low, and he's shooting it, and it's like, and he, and he re- investigated it, and he realized it's because the, the tension on the, on the string, lo- it lost tension. And I just thought, wow, what an amazing analogy, right? If we're thinking about hope as, this, as tension on a cord, gosh, you know, how often does that happen to us? You know, we can be firing on all cylinders, and then a little bit later we're not, and we're missing the mark, and we're shooting low, and we're, we, yeah, it just happens, you know, and Gosh, how amazing would it be if we could wake up every morning 100% hopeful all the time? You know, and I just think, man, if I could wake up every day and just be like, God is going to do something amazing today. I know what's going to happen. And after every conversation I have with someone, I walk away with this just peace and just like, oh, that confrontation that I just had, God's going to do amazing things with it. That's awesome. I don't even need to worry about it. It doesn't happen, right? Like, maybe I'm the only one, I don't know, but it just doesn't seem like that happens. You know, sometimes we lose our ambition and sometimes the tension is lost. And so, a question I ask myself is like, how do we get back on? How do we tighten back up? You know, and then I think, well, how did Nehemiah do it? How did the people of Israel do it? And then, you know, then I think, well, maybe they looked back at the scriptures, right? In my mind, that seems to make the most sense. They're reading it, you know, and so I, I looked at back at some scriptures and I just thought, you know, I'd like to, I'd love to read some of these and just think about the hope that we see in them. So, um, if you can turn them over back to Jeremiah, we read it earlier, Jeremiah 31. I'm just going to read verse 33. It says, This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. 
we go to Isaiah 61, turn back to Isaiah 61, it's in verse 1 to 3. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Amen. Or maybe maybe they didn't look at that. Maybe they turned over to Ezekiel, Ezekiel 39. Verse 29, it says, I will no longer hide my face from them, for I will pour out my spirit on the people of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord. And in Joel chapter 2, it says in verse 28, And afterward I will pour out my spirit on all the people, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Even on the servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Those are the scriptures that the people of Israel had to look back on, right? And they could look into the future of Jerusalem and be like, God is going to eventually do something amazing. What's great about us is we can look back at these scriptures and we can say, wow, they had that hope and, and God did it. Jesus, Jesus came. Jesus came and we have hope because of that. And he did pour out our, his spirit. We have all have access to the spirit of God. We all have access to this hope that Nehemiah has. And we don't even have to look forward to it anymore. We can look back to it. It's here. So we can look at scriptures and we know that God is a God who, who, uh, fulfills his will. He says something and he does it because we can look at these scriptures. So when we look at, we look at Matthew 29. Right? Let's turn over to Matthew 29, verse 20 for a sec. It says, It says, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We know that that's true because God does that. So we have hope. We have, we can't anticipate God and anticipate every day knowing that God is with us. Or, or turn over to Revelation, um, in chapter 21, chapter 21, verse 1 to 7. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself, he will be with them and he will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. Amen. Amen. Right? What, what, what else is there to say? Right? God, th- that's going to happen. We can anticipate that. And so as I, as I start kind of wrapping, wrapping up here, you know, I, I, there's a, 
a couple of weeks ago, Jaron gave us a challenge, right? And he said, I want us to, I want you guys to think about heaven daily, I believe is what it was, or consider heaven daily or something like that. You know, and I, I want to call back to that and I, I want to up the ante a little bit. Um, he said, think about heaven daily. I want to challenge you to, to, instead of just think about heaven daily, I want you to anticipate, yeah. anticipate heaven every day or look for heaven every day, eagerly, eagerly look for heaven every day because we have so much hope because of Jesus Christ, you know, and as we, you know, Spencer's going to come up and pray in a couple of seconds for, for communion, you know, and as we, we have this hope that because of Jesus and because of the sacrifice that he made for us, and we can, we have so much to look forward to, amen? amen. All right, thank you guys. Thank you so much for listening to the Kalamazoo Church of Christ podcast. If you're in the Kalamazoo area, we'd love to get connected. Please go to kalamazoo.church and fill in your information to come to a Sunday service or any other event that we have going on. In any case, you'll be hearing from us next week. Saving souls.